I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, race for the White House. Former President Donald Trump is back in the nation's capital, this time for a court appearance, seeking a solution. The Secretary of State meets high-level officials in Israel to discuss the war with Hamas and the future of Gaza. Urgent appeal. The United Nations weighs in on the whereabouts of a bishop abducted two weeks ago by the Ortega regime. And faith and family. And I think that um, faith in God is a huge, huge part uh, of not just as an elected official or as a candidate, but, but as a husband, as a father, and as a citizen. Part one of our sit-down interview with Florida Governor and GOP presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Adrian of Canterbury. Our top story tonight, former President Donald Trump was back in Washington, D.C. today in a courtroom regarding his actions after the 2020 election. That case before a three-judge federal appeals court panel centering on accusations that he was part of an insurrection on January 6, 2021. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has the latest. Good evening, Tracy. The former president was inside the courtroom but did not testify today. The federal appeals court judges expressed deep skepticism that the former president was immune from prosecution on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The panel also questioned whether they have jurisdiction to consider the appeal at this time in the case. Under heightened security, the SUV carrying the former president entered the federal courthouse through an underground garage. Inside, during lengthy arguments, the judges repeatedly pressed Trump's lawyer to defend claims that he was shielded from criminal charges for acts that he says fell under his official duties as president. After the hearing, the former president claimed he should have immunity. I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong, I'm working for the country. Trump's argument was rejected last month by a lower court judge overseeing the case and the appeals judges suggested through their questions that they too were dubious that the founding fathers envisioned absolute immunity for presidents after they leave office. Senator Tommy Tuberville tells me this is just another way to keep Trump off the ballot. They don't want him to be president again, uh, bottom line. And when you go after your competitor, uh, basically it's what Joe Biden is doing. It's Joe Biden and Barack Obama behind this. They do not want it to compete against Trump. Some Democrats say that a Supreme Court ruling favoring the former president would be dangerous. Whether it's fraud, whether it's violence, whether it, whatever it may be to say that no matter what happens, you cannot be held accountable in a court of law is an extremely, extremely destabilizing uh, position and finding uh, for, for the entire country that would have deeply, deeply damaging ramifications. Congresswoman Katie Porter says everyone should be concerned about the former president's actions. The real problem here is a president who time and time again decided that the rules didn't apply to him. And that should concern anybody, Democrat or Republican, regardless of your political views. Altogether, the former president faces 91 charges in four separate criminal cases against him. He denies any wrongdoing. The cases that don't reach a verdict before November may be moot 
if President Trump wins the 2024 presidential election. As president, he could try to end the two federal cases, and many legal experts believe that the Constitution prevents state prosecutors from pursuing charges against a sitting president. The cases could ultimately be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. From the courtroom to the campaign trail, the former president is well ahead in the Iowa polls. The caucuses are less than a week away. Republicans in the Hawkeye state will be the first in the nation to vote for a presidential nominee. Candidates have been crisscrossing Iowa for weeks now in an all-out push to convince the electorate they are the right person for the top job. And joining us now to discuss the importance of the caucuses, let's bring in Marinette Miller-Meeks, Republican Catholic Congresswoman who represents Iowa's first congressional district. Congresswoman Miller-Meeks, great to be with you again. First off, explain to us why it's important that Iowa be first. Great to be with you also, Tracy. I think it's important for Iowa to be first because Iowans really take this process seriously. They show up at events, they ask very tough and also very uncomfortable questions. They ask questions that people want to know uh, the answers to. Uh, but even more importantly than that, in Iowa, it's in a level playing field. So you don't have to be a known politician or a politician at all. You don't have to be the most well-funded, the most well-known. Uh, if you show up, you do the work, you meet people, you can launch yourself to the top of the leaderboard and really launch your presidential campaign. And Iowa has certainly selected its number of, uh, you know, presidents that went on after winning the Iowa caucus or are coming within the, you know, the top three. So, you know, unlike the states where you have very expensive television buys here, you don't have to do television. You can, but you can really gain momentum and gain strength and gain uh, fundraising uh, prowess by being here and showing up. And every presidential candidate that I have ever encountered in this cycle or previous cycles have all said the same thing to me. They're stunned by how many people will show up at an event to ask questions. Um, I remember when Huckabee ran his presidential campaign. He showed up in Ottumwa, Iowa. There were less than 50 people uh, at the Ottumwa Park. And less than a year later, he uh, came to do an event, and there were over 5,000 people at that an event. So it really is uh, based on merit and offers a level playing field regardless of where you are in the spectrum of your candidacy. Well, as you know, uh, former President Trump is still way ahead in the polls. At this point, do you think there's a chance that any of the other candidates can beat him? Oh, absolutely. I don't think anything is inevitable. I like the policies of President Trump, uh, but he is the former president. He is not an incumbent this cycle. Uh, and I think all of us know of uh, the uh, perils of reelecting Joe Biden. So all of us want someone that can be Joe Biden and someone that can pass things into law. And so I think nothing is in inevitable. We've seen candidates gain momentum. Uh, first, it was Vivek Ramasamy who gained momentum in uh, late August. Uh, now Nikki Haley seems to be gaining momentum. Uh, you know, the candidates have had some very important uh, endorsements. Certainly Donald Trump has. Uh, Nikki Haley has the endorsement of Marlis Potma, who uh, was the Iowa Right to Life chair. Potma, Ron DeSantis has the endorsement of Governor Reynolds. And so I really think that people are looking at the issues and who can beat Joe Biden and who can take this all away. Now, Congressman Miller-Meeks, always great to be with you. Thank you so much for your time today. We know you're a busy lady, so we appreciate it. Thank you so much.
Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is holding talks in Israel involving Gaza's post-war future. President Biden's top diplomat says the U.S. rejects any proposals advocating for the resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Tracy, President Joe Biden's top diplomat, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, back in the Middle East once again, describing an immense human toll over what has happened the last 95 days. He said another October 7th cannot happen and called allegations of genocide against Israel meritless. Israeli soldiers battling Hamas. The Israeli military releasing a video of what it says are their forces dismantling Hamas infrastructure. And today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the Mideast once again, here meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, trying to keep the conflict from blowing up even more. Blinken addressed reporters concerning the tensions on Israel's northern border with Hezbollah. We're fully committed to working with Israel to find a diplomatic solution that avoids escalation and allows families to return to their homes to live securely in northern Israel and also in southern Lebanon. Also, looking ahead to what comes next as Israel's military campaign in northern Gaza winds down and achieves its goals, the plan for displaced Palestinian civilians. In today's meetings, I was also uh, crystal clear. Palestinian civilians must be able to return home as soon as conditions allow. They must not be pressed to leave Gaza. In Tel Aviv, near hotel where Blinken was meeting with the Israeli president, protesters calling for a ceasefire to aid the release of hostages, roughly 108 of them remaining alive in captivity. One medical team says of those, many suffer from diabetes, cancer, or heart disease. Meanwhile, a top World Health Organization official in Gaza says he's seeing no let-up in the intensity of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Thousands killed or wounded, people fleeing, no near end in sight. And at the Pentagon, this assessment of the ongoing conflict. And no one wants to see innocent civilians killed in this conflict, whether they be Palestinian or Israeli. And so we'll continue to work toward that end. Secretary Blinken also said today he met with families of hostages still being held in Gaza, adding that every hour and every minute they are separated from their loved ones is an eternity for them. And he spoke of hundreds of thousands of families in Gaza, parents who cannot feed their kids due to acute food insecurity, calling the passage of another day without food, in his words, excruciating. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. The White House and Pentagon both plan to review a controversy surrounding the U.S. Defense Secretary. Lloyd Austin found out that he had prostate cancer last month, but failed to properly inform people in the chain of command, even though he had been hospitalized. The Pentagon admits shortfalls, and the White House has told all cabinet secretaries to review their procedures. They want to make sure there is a process to transfer authority if a senior official cannot do their job. In this case, they say Austin is performing his duties from the hospital. The United Nations is calling on Nicaragua to disclose the location where it is holding an abducted bishop. Bishop Isadora Mora was abducted more than two weeks ago by the Ortega regime. The 63-year-old was arrested the day after he asked for prayers for imprisoned Bishop Rolando Alvarez. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including victory for religious freedom. New developments at Notre Dame in a defamation case involving a student newspaper. And an estimated two million people jam the streets of Manila for a religious feast. We'll explain.
dismiss a University of Notre Dame professor's lawsuit against a student-run newspaper that reported on her pro-abortion advocacy. The judge says the professor's claims of defamatory coverage by the Irish Rover were unfounded. The case had raised questions about press freedom at the Catholic University. The paper said the ruling reflected that its reporting was factual and written in good faith. As we mentioned, next week is the Iowa caucuses, and a Catholic group is doing its best to make sure the faithful are there and have their voices heard. According to numbers from Catholic Vote, 50% of the faithful in Iowa do not vote in elections in midterm years. This is a presidential election year, and the group says that it is embarking on the largest Catholic voter mobilization program ever. And for more, let's turn to Brian Birch, president of Catholic Vote. Brian, great to have you back on the show. So tell us more about your efforts to get Catholic voters to the polls this year and why it is important for the faithful to cast their ballots. Well, you're absolutely right. The numbers show that uh, large numbers of mass-attending Catholics, not just Catholics who claim to be Catholic, but mass-attending Catholics, do not regularly vote in elections. And I think it's incumbent upon us and those of us who care about what's happening in our country, not just to sit back and watch the news and complain and get frustrated, but to actually get out there and vote. And because of the size of the Catholic Church in this country, even a small increase in the percentage of mass attending Catholics voting could have dramatic impact on the outcome of these elections. Brian, what role do you think abortion is going to play in this election for the White House? And which GOP candidate do you think seems to be the strongest on the issue? Well, our bishops tell us the abortion issue is the preeminent issue. It has to be because it involves such a substantial a threat uh, to innocent lives uh, at such a scale that it's it's uh, uh, doesn't compare to anything else. Um, I think all of the candidates at some level on the Republican side um, are certainly pro-life um, by uh, certainly compared to President Biden and his extreme abortion advocacy. Um, I think each of them are taking a, a, a different tack and some of them for political reasons and some of them because uh, they want uh uh, to win over, uh, obviously, uh, different segments of the vote. Um, frankly, at this point, I think um, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are probably the two strong, and, and, and Vivek Ramaswamy are the three strongest candidates, I think, on the pro-life issue. What about at the state level? Um, you know, abortion-related initiatives there, what are you following? Well, there's going to be eight or nine ballot initiatives, depending on how many of them make it to the ballot. And the left is going to use this issue as the wedge to try, try to drive their voters to the polls. And that's going to have to be countered by groups like ours and pro-life groups on the ground in these states to make sure that this doesn't overwhelm, um, not just on the abortion issue, but all of these electoral races. And I think a number of these places, like Florida, which is going to be an important swing state, and Arizona are two places that we're going to be watching very closely. Well, another story uh, that we have been following very closely, uh, this recent study uh, from Pew Research that said 46 percent of Catholics say that abortion pills should be legal as opposed to 26 percent who say they should be illegal. Brian, I want to get your reaction to this study. I mean, does this surprise you at all? It doesn't surprise us. As you know, the Catholic Church in this country is very divided on this issue. Obviously, for us, we pay a lot more closer attention to Catholics that are still engaged in their faith, that are still going to church, that are still uh, working to live out as best they can uh, their faith in fidelity to church teaching. 
The church is very clear. Abortion pills or abortion surgeries or abortions in general are never justified. Um, and so this is a really tragic stat. And it, I think all of us have a role to play here. Our bishops have a role. Our priests have a role. And we as lay people have to help uh, people understand that this involves uh, the taking of an innocent human life. And it destroys marriages and it perverts the entire church teaching on sexuality. And before I let you go, I'm almost out of time here, but what are some of the other projects that you're working on? Well, you know, people have to pay close attention to what's happening in Washington, D.C. Uh, typically in election year, the politicians kind of take it off and hit the campaign trail. But, you know, the Republican majority is is only uh, a slight a couple vote margin. And there is a path here where Democrats could take back control of the House. And if they were to do that, there was a lot of bills that they would likely try to ram through. And so we're going to have to pay attention to what's going on in Washington. Of course, on the campaign trail, lots of states, the Senate, the House, all up for grabs. It's going to be a very, very uh, important election year. And Catholics have to be right there at the front on the front lines. All right, Brian Birch, president of Catholic Vote. Always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, Presidential Hopeful, part one of our sit-down interview with Florida governor and GOP candidate Ron DeSantis. Plus, the faithful in the Philippines flock to a centuries-old statue of Christ. Earlier, the Iowa caucuses are just days away, and one candidate hoping to make an impact at the polls is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In part one of our two-part interview, EWTN's Monsi Alvarado talks to the presidential hopeful about the importance of faith in his life and career. Governor, it's great to be with you here. Thank you so much for giving us this time. Welcome to Tallahassee. Absolutely. As a Floridian, it's nice to be here. I want to hear a little bit about where your faith comes from. You've told us and the American people that your faith is important to you. But what was that like growing up? Italian? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I was uh, in church every Sunday uh, from the time I can remember walking until uh, the time I, uh, I left my, my parents' household. And so that it was just something that was ingrained in me. Uh, I remember going to, uh, to to college. You know, I, I was blue collar kid. I got recruited to play baseball at places like Princeton and Yale. I didn't even know colleges were liberal. I mean, like I had no idea what I was getting into. I show up on the campus just dressed like you would in, in West Central Florida, jean shorts, T-shirt, flip-flops. I was a total fish out of water. It was a major culture shock. But, you know, one of the things that I saw was Yale University, one of their mottos is for God, for country, for Yale. But yet I'm in some of these classrooms and like the anti-religion, anti-Christian, and I just never experienced that. I mean, where I was growing up, you know, faith in God, love of country, that those were just, it didn't matter you're Republican, Democrat. I mean, that was kind of how it was. And then I experienced that. Um, and so I came into there with, I think, a foundation and people always talk about, well, these colleges, you know, they're indoctrinating kids, whatever. I can say I'm one of the few people to get through both Yale and Harvard and come out more conservative than when I went in. And part of that, I think, is because I had that foundation uh, of faith from a very young person uh, growing up. What do you do to strengthen that faith in God? Some people have prayer routines. Marky Mark talks about waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning and doing meditations. What does that look like for you when you have all of the pressures of governance, but also raising a family in a moment like this? Well, I think it's just, I think, I really believe in the power of prayer. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you do have kind of a, um, 
a feeling. It's kind of a calmness just to know that, you know, ultimately we're in this world, but we're not of this world. And every single day when you're in this political thicket, they're throwing stuff at you, shooting at you, all this stuff, uh, trying to kind of divert you off course of, of, of taking you away from that true north. And I think just being able to, to, to pray, being able to be in touch with, um, uh, with the Lord, it just gives you a way to just know none of that stuff really matters. Um, none of that stuff matters. And, and I can also tell you just in trials and tribulations that we've had, you know, when my wife um, in 2021 got diagnosed with breast cancer, at the time, we had a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And so those types of diagnoses are hard for anyone. But I think especially when you have a mother of really young kids, to be in a situation where, you know, you could be, you know, having a, an incident where um, she may not get through that. And then these kids would grow up without a mother. It's very, very uh, shocking when that happens. It was really tough for us when we got the news. But I'll tell you this, the people that prayed for us um, over those weeks and months uh, had a huge impact. Um, and it really lifted my wife's spirits. Uh, she had to go through a lot of really, really tough stuff. Um, but she was able to do it. I obviously, as, as the husband and the father, was there to, 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 be, to be supportive, uh, and she ended up coming out of that, I would say, probably stronger now as a result. Not, you know, she would never wish any of that, anyone go through that, but I think she would tell you she's stronger as a result of having done that. That's hard. Um, I think what you're going through is particularly difficult for someone who wants to keep family life so private. You can imagine why voters would be interested in knowing everything about your life since celebrity candidates have become really the thing. I mean, with Hillary, with Obama, you had the rise of the celebrity candidate, but also the rise of candidates who portray themselves as people of faith but aren't necessarily really that in their hearts. What kind of an answer do you have to that curiosity? Well, I think one of the things that, that, that we bring, uh, my wife and I, is this country has a, has a crisis of family disintegration. Uh, you have forces that are actively hostile uh, to, to family, trying to undermine rights of parents. I mean, I had a, a debate with the governor of California, and I pointed out in California law, they allow minors from other states behind their parents' back to go into California and get uh, gender surgeries, which is basically mutilation. It's, it's, it's terrible. Parents don't even consent or know about this. That is a direct attack um, on parents and on family. And then we have so many kids that grow up without a father in the household. Uh, we've done a lot in Florida to launch a fatherhood initiative to raise the importance of fatherhood, to make sure folks know they have responsibilities. But then also in situations where it's just not possible to have a father present, sometimes fathers are in, are in prison, uh, to, to promote mentorship. Because some these kids, if someone takes an interest in their life, that could be the difference between them being productive or going in a really bad, bad direction. So I think one of the things we bring is uh, we show the importance of family because that's just who we are uh, as people. Uh, we, we, we try to bring our kids and involve them in this just because we want to spend more time with them. They've gotten to do a lot of stuff. I mean, prior to this campaign, they had never seen snow before. They are Floridians, <laughs> and so they didn't know. So they got to make snowman in New Hampshire, throw snowballs in Iowa. Um, they've gotten to go you know, all across the country, really, and, and see a, a lot of America, much different than when I was growing up, where you know, I was pretty much you know, in my town, and, and I'd travel for baseball, but that, that was about it. So, so there have been some good things. But I do think what we represent is uh, you know, kind of a restoration of the idea that, that family really is the centerpiece of American life. If we have strong families, you know, we are going to have a strong country. 
um, if families continue to disintegrate, you know, a lot of the problems that, that, we, that we deal with, you know, those are going to end up being magnified and those are going to grow. Uh, and government isn't the solution to all of this. I think government can play a role, uh, but certainly just as an example of this is important to us. We take our responsibilities as parents seriously, uh, education, parents' rights, all those things that flow. You know, we've had big fights in Florida over things like, is it appropriate to have gender ideology in elementary school? And we had to battle against Disney, the most powerful company in Florida, over that. And I'd like to think I would have taken those strong stands anyways. But the fact that I'm a father of young kids, you know, it's really, really personal to me because I'm thinking to myself, I have a first grader. It's totally inappropriate to tell her that she can change her gender or that her gender is a choice. Um, And so I think that it's helped us uh, really be strong on education, parents' rights, and these core issues that matter so much to parents. And we will have part two of Monsi Alvarado's interview with Governor Ron DeSantis tomorrow. Well, finally tonight, a massive crowd, roughly more than two million people, gathered in downtown Manila to venerate our Lord. The crowd celebrated the Feast of the Black Nazarene. Participants venerated the centuries-old statue of Jesus. Many also prayed for peace in the Middle East, where many people from the Philippines have jobs. The statue has survived fires, earthquakes, and even wars, and has been credited with countless cures of diseases and other ailments. Well, we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.